Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Good morning, church. Good to see everyone this morning. You know, we, uh, we come to the end of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, by that apostle is much, much larger, much longer. Luke's version is shorter, and that's okay. He was, he was speaking to a different audience for a different purpose. And so uh, while much of what Luke has, Matthew has, Matthew has more. But I don't think any of us ever have a problem with a shorter sermon instead of a longer sermon, right? So it's okay. Don't get your hopes up. Uh, let's, just, let's put this in perspective. He's just named the 12 apostles uh, out, of the over, uh, the, over the, out of the larger group of disciples. And so he's pulled them to a mountainside, and they, uh, he's going to teach them in this sermon what it means to be a disciple. What does discipleship look like? That's a word we use a lot around here. What does it look like when we are following Jesus? What does discipleship look like? And if you'll remember in the opening portion of his sermon in verses 20 to 26, um, we saw that followers of Jesus should expect earthly troubles and eternal satisfaction. And then in the passage last week where um, we looked at that, that, that saying to love your enemies, maybe Jesus' hardest saying, uh, he pointed out to us that we do not respond to abuse and misuse and oppression and things that come our way that are hurtful and harmful. Those who sin against us, we, instead of lashing back, we pursue what is good for others, even when they mistreat us. Well, this morning, we are going to finish out this sermon in this chapter in verses 37 to 49. And in this final chapter, this final portion of what Jesus tells us, he's pointing out that his followers will be characterized in a specific way. They'll have generous hearts and a genuine life. We, we will obviously experience opposition. We got re, to realize that, that we will expect troubles, but along with those troubles will come eternal satisfaction. And again, we are to pursue what is good for others, even at our own cost. And then finally, a follower of Jesus is characterized by a gracious heart and a genuine life. Let's start with the gracious heart portion of this text. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, 
and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. This verse, verse 37, over the last 150 years, scholars, pastors, students of the Bible, as they've written about it, at least in America, there's been like unanimous agreement. This is the most popular verse in the Bible. And it's the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. I mean, I think many of us have either done it to others or we've had it done to us. At some point, you're in a conversation and, in, you know, maybe it's in a group or it's with a, somebody in your family and, you know, they are going down a path that is, you know is wrong. It's contrary to everything that is in God's word. And when you talk about it and you point into scripture, they bow up and they go, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> and it's always in the King James Version, right? <laughs> And they throw that back in your face. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Anybody ever had that done to you? You ever had that quote? Yeah, right. I think almost most people, if you've engaged with others, it's kind of like that expression that we looked at last week, to turn the other cheek. What does it mean to turn the other cheek? I mean, again, a very misunderstood statement by Jesus. And just as we did last week, we have to just explore what does Jesus mean and what does he not mean in that expression. The main idea here that Jesus is communicating is that his disciples are generous and grace and mercy towards those who sin against them. This is the main idea here in these opening verses that when we are sinned against, and we're all sinned against, as followers of Christ, if you're a disciple, you respond to that sin with grace and mercy. You know, Jesus has already told us that uh, we will be sinned against in a variety of ways. Some of it's because we live in a fallen world, and others of us will experience it because of, of opposition to Jesus. And so what we have here in verse 37 is Jesus building on this idea to love your enemies, to do good to those who misuse you, to bless those who oppress you and scorn you, to be merciful as your Father is merciful to those who are sinning. And, and how, what does that look like? Don't judge them. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Now, when you think about what Jesus is not saying here, church, Jesus is not saying that Christians should not stand up and speak against injustice that we should not you know, speak out against immorality and those things that are contrary to the word of God and, and to oppose things that we see in our society or in the lives of those uh, that we love or in our children who are going down a path that's going to lead to heartache. It's not like he's saying, okay, you know that everything this person is going to do is leading them to destruction, but don't you dare open your mouth to that person. You got to keep it shut. Jesus is not saying that, okay? We already saw last week that part of turning the other cheek is standing up to sin and injustice, but doing it in the right way. And later on, I mean, we'll just think about Jesus. We're going to see it in the book of Luke. Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are leading people to destruction through their false teaching and through their error and their false words of spiritual truth. And Jesus doesn't say, boy, that's not good. That's not good for those people at all. I sure wish those guys would stop. Is that how he responds? 
No, he turns to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he goes, you guys are snakes. You're a viper. You're a hypocrite. Ooh. So Jesus is not saying that we don't evaluate the truth of a matter and speak out when it is bringing harm to others or it's immoral and sinful. Um, Jesus is also not saying that the number of judgments that we all make behind the innumerable decisions in our lives that end up hopefully being wise and prudent decisions, that those judgments that we make are wrong. Uh, I, I was thinking about this. I remember many years ago, and whenever I tell illustrations like this in sermons and other contexts through the years, uh, this is when I'll get hit with, well, somebody will come up, and I'll, you shouldn't judge. Judge not. What are you doing? I was judgmental. You know, that kind of thing. In that tone of voice, by the way. Uh, <laughs> So when I tell stories like this, sometimes that's the reaction. And I know by even saying that, some of you, just to yank my chain, are going to come up after the service and go, Judge not! But yeah, see, told you. But many years ago, Catherine and I were in the car. We were on a trip with our boys. They were young at the time. And we were hungry. It was late at night. We'd been traveling. And one of us likes to push the boundaries and travel much longer and maybe try to milk as much time into the trip as you can. And, and so finally, uh, I stopped for dinner. It was late. And we pull into this place, and outside the restaurant, there was a crowd of, of young men and some women and you could tell they had been there for a while. And they had been imbibing, and they were, they were feeling no pain, and they were rowdy. And some of them looked really, really rough. You know what I mean? I mean, some people have the look of, okay, good. Others, hmm, okay. And, and it was one of those situations. And I drove up, and I looked at it, and I looked over at Catherine, and she goes, nope. <laughs> right? And I had to drive on. That is not, oh, you judge not. No, that is prudent evaluation, looking at the situation and saying, I mean, parents, dads, when that guy comes sniffing around your teenage daughter, you better exercise some evaluation here and look at this guy and go, mm, nope. <laughs> parents, Jesus isn't saying you should not be making judgments and evaluating situations, and then in turn making wise decisions as you put boundaries and you protect your children and you raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So what is Jesus saying in this verse? Jesus is referring to a heart attitude in us, the disposition of our spirit. When someone sins against us, we will not be, and hear this, this is the meaning, we will not be judgmental and critical, and spiteful, assuming the worst motives about the person, and even assuming the worst about the person. And then, when someone sins against us, rather than responding with condemnation, and arrogance, and spitefulness, and criticism, we offer grace. We offer mercy. We offer understanding. We offer love and compassion. And ultimately, as verse 37 tells us, we forgive. And this is actually where verse 37 can be so hard. Because 
Sometimes when we are sinned against, the, the nature of that sin is so egregious, so painful, so hurtful, the very idea of forgiving just seems outside the pale. How do I even forgive this person? I understand Jesus isn't saying that when someone sins against you, forgiveness is going to be easy and it's going to be automatic and immediate. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Depending on the severity of the hurt and the sin against you, the forgiveness will not come immediately. And in fact, it will unfold in stages due to the pain and the trauma associated with the sin. And, and what you'll find is that those stages, there may be multiple stages in the course of your life where you find yourself having to forgive someone over and over and over again throughout the years of your life as a memory is pulled up in your mind because of a smell or an event that happens. And so when Jesus says forgive here, let's understand what he is saying and what he's not saying, as difficult as it may be. We are to give grace and mercy, not be judgmental, but to be great, give grace and mercy and forgive. And as difficult as that may be, the, the blessing is, is that we can know that the blessings that come will fill our hearts full of grace and mercy It'll be substantial, the blessings that God gives us. You see it in verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. These blessings will be put into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, there's some debate about that verse. Some through the years have said Jesus is being literal and physical. He's talking about giving of our time and our talents, our finances to those who are in need, even those who sin against us. And, and others understand Jesus to be metaphorical here and spiritual in nature. And certainly, I think we can all agree that scriptures teach that Christians are supposed to be generous with our resources to everyone, especially those who are in need. Uh, I, I just, you know, kind of as a side note, since, you know, I was out for most of January, I never told you, I never followed up with you. You know, back in December, we told you about our mercy fund, that, that fund of money that we use to help the people in our church and in our community who have tangible physical needs. Maybe they need money to help with marital counseling or they need help with rent, whatever the case may be. And that fund had just dropped and dropped and dropped. And our mercy team was at the point where they're gonna have to start cutting back important aspects of this ministry. And we told you about that in December and we had a special offering at Christmas Eve. And I just wanted to tell you, you guys gave $17,000 in the month of December. Praise the Lord, yeah, yeah. And uh, hey, that, that is just so awesome. The, the fund is back up, and the mercy team is able just to keep chugging the way that it needs to chug. I just wanted to say thank you for that. And certainly, this idea of being generous and giving and then God giving back to us in different ways, it's, it's true about things like money, but I don't think the literal physical is what Jesus has in mind here. In this particular passage, it's in line with all that we've been seeing about loving your enemies and doing good to them and blessing them and praying for them and not judging or condemning them. He's got the spiritual aspect here in mind. He's saying that his followers will have a disposition of the heart that compels us to generously give grace and forgiveness to those who sin against us, but not give them judgmental condemnation and spiteful 
hatred. As we forgive and give mercy and grace to those in need, this verse is assuring us we will receive even more grace, even more mercy from our Heavenly Father, more abundantly than we ever could even begin to think because let's face it, we need abundant grace and mercy to just give a little grace and mercy to the person who sins against us in an egregious manner, doesn't we? In fact, is there ever a day, church, where we don't need the overabundant, overwhelming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? We go through those special occasions been prayed for many of you who are going through them right now. You know you're in the thick of it. You need the overabundant, overwhelming grace and mercy of God. But we need it even through the normal routines of life. And the blessing of this passage is when we respond to those who sin against us in this way, God promises, I'm going to outdo you every time. I'm going to give you grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy so that you can love your enemies, so that you can forgive those who need to be forgiven. And how right is this for us? As sons and daughters of God, as disciples of Jesus, we have experienced the overwhelming love and forgiveness of our Heavenly Father And because of this, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, and he compels us not to be judgmental and critical to those who hurt us. In fact, if we try, if we're followers of Christ, and we try to harbor anger, bitterness, wrath towards people who sin against us, if that's our response I promise you, the Holy Spirit will relentlessly convict you and make you miserable until you forgive. He's relentless. I speak this from experience. Experiencing God's forgiving grace. This is what empowers something so difficult as forgive them. Do not judge and condemn and be spiteful to them. It's that presence of God's forgiving grace in our own life that empowers us to pray that petition of the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Followers of Jesus, they're characterized by a generous heart and a genuine life. Let's think about the genuine life portion of this. Verses 39 to 49. In these verses... We have four practical expressions of genuine discipleship. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples, what is discipleship? What does it look like to follow me? When God has changed our lives and changed our hearts so that we love Jesus and we follow him, it affects us in our everyday living, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave. So the first thing we see in these verses is that disciples live as an ambassador for Jesus. In verses 39 to 40, uh, Jesus is pulling from two very common proverbs that were used by the Jewish rabbis. Uh, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
So these Proverbs are speaking to the reality in that day of how there would be a rabbi or a master teacher, and then there would be disciples, students. Um, we, we might use the word of mentor and mentee, you know, these kinds of relationships. And in this context, they speak to how Jesus real, knows that we are going to be given the Great Commission. We are disciples who are supposed to be making disciples through evangelism. As we do this, we're to keep our eyes fixed on the master teacher, fixed upon Jesus. We're to lead people to Jesus. We don't lead them to ourselves. See, the Pharisees, they influenced people. Some of them were rabbis. Some of them were religious. They were religious leaders. And they exerted their influence upon people. And where did they lead them? They did not lead them to God. They led them to religious traditions. And then as a result, it was the blind leading the blind. They both ended up being destroyed. And so Jesus is pointing something out here to us. We are his disciples. We will never be greater than Jesus. And so as we make disciples, we don't lead them to ourselves. We don't lead them to John Calvin. <laughs> we don't lead them to John Wesley. We don't lead them to John MacArthur. <laughs> A lot of Johns there. <laughs> we don't lead them to Donald Trump or Joe Biden. We don't lead them to a political party. We don't lead them to Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or any of the other so-called cultural philosophers that are out there today. We don't lead them to that. Christian, you only have so much relational capital with people. And what Jesus is making sure we understand is that if we are following him, and our hearts are filled with love and adoration for him, we will lead them to him because he's the only source of truth. He's the only way for eternal life. Don't waste time in trying to influence them and lead them to someone else other than Jesus because he's the only light. Disciples live as an ambassador for Jesus, for Jesus. Secondly, disciples live authentically with one another. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Um, Jesus is being funny here. He has a sense of humor. He's employing the humor of the absurd. He's making a caricature of hypocrisy. I, I remember hearing way back, man, this goes back decades. How many of you remember uh, radio dramas? You remember dramas on the radio? Yeah, all of us have now aged ourselves who remember that. But children before, you know, in our, you know, Stone Age times, we would listen to stories on the radio for entertainment, and they would have, you know, they'd be funny, or they would have a cliffhanger, and you'd have to listen again the next week, you know, and all that. I remember hearing on dramatic radio one time the story of the Speck family. 
the Speck family. And the story begins, and as the story continues, all of a sudden you hear crashing everywhere. And everything they tried to do resulted in, you know, just destruction and havoc. Why? Because the Speck family, who was always looking for specks in other people's eyes, had planks hanging out of theirs. And so they would come to hug, and they'd hit each other in the face. With their, so it was just the absurd. And that's really the picture that woke you up, huh? That was good. All right. There you go. Yeah. Um, that's the picture of absurdity that Jesus is employing here. In other words, if we're followers of Jesus, what does discipleship look like? We don't live hypocritically with others, but we live authentically and humbly before them, inside the church and outside the church. That means when we sin against people, our neighbor, in our community, in our family, whether they know Christ or don't know Christ, we are the first to go and repent and confess our sinfulness and to ask for forgiveness and do so humbly. True Christians, Jesus says, and this, uh, you know, analogy, are relentlessly evaluating our, their own hearts. True Christians, disciples, are first concerned with their own sin, are most concerned with maintaining a humble, repentant heart. This is discipleship. Thirdly, disciples live abundantly out of a changed heart. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We're going to see later in the book, at this stage, the crowds of disciples who are following Jesus are massive. Maybe number into the thousands. But as we will see by the end of this story, it's down to a few hundred most who were following him were false. They fall away. And so the question then becomes, how do you know? How do you know whether you are a true or a false disciple? And Jesus here says, do something. Judge. He says, why judge not? Lest you be there doesn't mean judge, it means judgmentalism. Because in these verses, Jesus is commanding us to judge. He commands each and every one of you to judge. Judge what? Yourself. Your own fruit. And that determines whether you are a true or a false disciple. Now, Catherine and I have owned a couple of homes that had fruit trees. And uh, I remember one of them had a massive lime tree. The first year, we thought, these are the best limes we've ever eaten. Our neighbors would come over, and they would take our limes for, I'm sure, you know, non-alcoholic reasons. No, we had one neighbor every night. He had to have, have a lime off our tree for a gin and tonic, right? And, I mean, they loved these limes. They were wonderful. First year, we loved it. Second year, eh. Third year, and finally, my neighbor said, you know why your limes are going bad? And I said, no, why? He goes, because you're not taking care of the tree. He says, you're, the guy who built this house and planted this tree, he would prune it every year, and he would cultivate the soil, and he would take care of the blight and everything else so that it would flourish. You have to take care of this tree. You have to cultivate it. I go, oh. I didn't know. I was young and dumb, right? And so I went to the gardening center, and I found out how to do it. In the fourth year, guess what? We had an abundant fruit, and it was good again. In the fifth year, it was even better. 
The other house we had was, I had orange trees. In fact, it was the first house Catherine and I bought together. And in the backyard, there were two orange trees. And this was a selling point on the house besides the price point because that's about all we could afford. But these two trees were gorgeous orange trees. They were perfect in shape and dimension. And when that fruit turned orange, you know, around the fall period, early winter, it was like, you know, it was like the, a postcard for the PR firm of the state of Florida. They showed these things were perfect. They were gorgeous. And we had oranges by the bushels. That is not an exaggeration. Remember all those oranges? I mean, by the bushels, we would have oranges. And every single one of those oranges was as sour and horrible as you ever put in your mouth. It was disgusting. And nothing, my dad, I asked my dad, he had orange. I said, would you come over? Nothing we could do would change the fruit of those orange trees because the root was sour. Christians were to judge our fruit. Now, I got news for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes your limes are going to be delicious and wonderful, and then you're going to have seasons where they're not too good. Or even in a season where you have a great harvest and there's all kinds of fruit, you still have bad ones. And you have to cut that out and you have to deal with it. And this branch that's, oh man, clip. As Christians, as you look at your life and you look at your fruit, understand this doesn't mean you aren't going to struggle with sin. We're always going to struggle with sin this side of glory. But the, the trajectory of your life is more and more abundant obvious existence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's growing, and it's there, and it's expressing itself naturally. Is that fruit in your life? Is that fruit there? Does your fruit reflect Jesus? And that's the important caveat, because listen, every one of us, when we do our own fruit inspection... We always come out smelling pretty sweet, don't we? We can always find evidence. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm, I look at all this goodness here. But goodness compared to what? It's not goodness compared to our neighbors or someone else that we are being judgmental towards. It's goodness compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. One final characteristic here. Disciples live anchored to Jesus. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And then he tells us this story. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Everybody at that day would have appreciated that parable that Jesus gave because Palestine has dirt. The ground is as hard as that hard-baked red clay in Georgia. You know what I'm talking about? Georgia has some of the hardest ground. I remember as a kid going camping in Georgia in August, and my dad, 
you know, uh, you know he, was, he was stifling what he probably wanted to say, but he was pounding these stakes and then he kept shattering. The plastic ones would shatter, the little aluminum ones would bend because the ground was so hard. Couldn't get the tent put up, right? But that's the way the ground in Palestine, it's just the ground, it's hard. And so people in Jesus's day, even in modern, all the way up into the 20th century, when they would build their house, some would take a shortcut and they would dig down a little bit and they would anchor their, their house into that hard dirt thinking that, okay, I'm stable now. What they didn't do is they didn't dig through that hard layer to get to the true bedrock. And so this is a picture from the early 1920s. In the early 1920s, there was an earthquake in Palestine and what ended up happening was any number of homes like this, they fell over, they didn't make it. Why? Because they only anchored themselves to that surface level, but the homes that dug through it, that were anchored to the bedrock, they withstood the earthquake perfectly fine. Church people are going to sin against you. They're going to use you. They're going to abuse you at times. They're going to hurt you simply because we live in a fallen world. And at other times, things will be said and it'll be hurt because of your claims to Jesus Christ, chances are you're going to face scorn, derision, sarcasm, other forms of persecution for your allegiance to Jesus, and then just hurt because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes it's people who do things to you. Sometimes it's the natural course of life. When disaster strikes and you lose the loved one or you hear the doctor's diagnosis, and when those things happen, and they will happen, some people just fall apart. They never recover. They turn their back on Christ. They claim to be a Christian, but they're done. Done. There's millions of people in America today who 20 years ago claimed to be Christians who are now classified as done by all the pollsters that are out there. Why? Why does that happen? Whereas other people, they face similar events, even worse and yet they ultimately remain loyal to Jesus. What is the difference? The difference is the first group, they were just paying lip service to Jesus. Their belief in Jesus was like an academic belief. It was an intellectual exercise. It's like they took what Jesus said or what they had been taught by their parents and by their grandma, and they said, okay, that sounds good, and they adopted it as a philosophical paradigm for life. But their faith stops at the intellectual assent to the truth of what Jesus says. Whereas others who remain loyal, they are anchored to Jesus. Their belief, their faith, certainly it includes the intellectual aspects of it, but it doesn't stop there. Their belief is a matter of the heart. They've submitted their life and all that they are to Jesus as Lord. They worship him in their heart as king, as creator, as God, as Lord who's in charge. That's the difference. So how do you know that you're part of that group and not the first? How do you know whether you are anchored to Jesus or not? Jesus tells you. Do you listen to what he says and then Obey it. Do you listen and obey? And when you don't, because none of us obey perfectly, 
Are you judgmental and spiteful? And do you deflect from yourself and point the finger at others? Or do you repent and ruthlessly evaluate yourself? Humbly look and say, I'm a sinner and confess it and repent it to the Lord Jesus. One is a true disciple, the other is not. Which are you? Which are you? Lord Jesus, may you open our eyes and our hearts to be able to answer that question accurately. May you not let us be self-deceived. May we know that we are anchored to you. And Lord Jesus, the person here this morning who doesn't know that they're anchored to you, may even today be the day that their journey to eternal life begins. Would you do a work in their heart? Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins so that we could have forgiveness from our heavenly Father. We have forgiveness because you were judged in our place. Our sins justly received the punishment they deserved, death. And so we praise you for this, and we know that it's in this truth that we are empowered to judge not, to forgive, to not condemn. In your name we pray, amen.